know that you should have? How many of you have the prayer life you know that you're supposed to have? Kind of of a little bit of a hand? I was kind of hoping that some of us are total screw-ups. Thank you. I know Nancy does. Yes, good. Yeah, so some of us are kind of like, yeah, I I have a vibrant prayer life. That's okay. Good. Um, But... For those of you that didn't have your hand up, I didn't mean to have mine up. I don't feel like I have the prayer life that I should have. Um, And then, how often do any of you start to pray? You sit down and you start to pray. And then like several minutes later, you realize that you were doing really well for about eight seconds. And then you started worrying about that thing going on later today or you're you got your head bowed and you're wondering which of the kids stained the carpet right there and you know what I mean you, you, you've been pray, praying for several minutes but you're like oh I, <laughs> I got derailed real quick um, if, if I asked every one of us to one by one come up and share how many actual minutes in prayer did, did you have this week would anyone just be like re- ready to share it like yeah 9800 minutes I was praying this week and then lastly, how many of you, if I can get a show of hands, have ever felt guilty in a sermon on prayer? Okay. <laughs> so, just you wait. <laughs> just you wait. We're going to, I'm going to give it to you. No, honest, honest, I'm right alongside you. This struggle is mine before it's anyone else's. So, trust me. <laughs> that I'm not going to beat you over the head with condemnation for prayerlessness. I, I do that enough to myself. Trust me, I'm, I'm seeking, I'm aiming today to be practical and helpful for us to look up to where Jesus is calling us to. So uh, let's look at our text in verse 5. Let's read just this first verse. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may, seen by, may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So, praying for show, I don't know the equivalent of that today. We don't really stand on the street corners, many of us, and just pray uh, so everyone sees how spiritual we are, but maybe the equivalent would be posting that pic of you with your open Bible and your cup of coffee in the morning, like, hashtag blessed, starting my day with Jesus. That might be the equivalent, like, don't do that. (laughs) That's not really the point of the the sermon or the text, but let's get that out of the way. Um, The first words here of this text, when you pray, he's going to teach us how to pray, but he starts by telling us what, how not to pray. Don't do this. And you'll actually see verse 5, when you pray, don't. You'll see verse 6, when you pray, do. And then verse 7, when you pray, again, don't be like the unbelievers. So, I want to use kind of the same strategy. Like, this is kind of be a sermon on what not to do. In fact, I've called the sermon, Five Steps to a Bad Prayer Life. So, I'm going to give you... I, Five pointers. That the, these aren't going to be exhaustive. Um, I know because I cut two of them for the sake of time. So this isn't a total list. But if you want to have just a dreadful prayer life, you can follow these five steps. Easy steps. I promise it'll be painless and easy. 
So, this won't be exhaustive. We're not even honestly going to scratch the surface of the glory of Jesus' uh, prayer here and all that could be said and all that has been said and all that you can read in wonderful books. In fact, these five steps here are probably just the five things I'm struggling with most right now. It might be more autobiographical, but anyway, let's look at all five of them. Number one, to pray, just start praying. Like, it's that easy, right? If you want to have a better, better prayer life, just... Throughout your day, just throw up whatever random thoughts bounce to the top of of your little brain noodle. That little three-pound box, just just toss them right up out of your head and, and just offer to God anything. No. Okay, like tongue out of cheek. No. If you're coming to speak to a king, let him have the first word of the conversation. So start... In a, you sit down to pray. This isn't talking about, you know, moments before a meeting or an exam. Like, go ahead and throw up a, a prayer. Thumbs up. But when you sit down to pray as Jesus is teaching his disciples to do, let God have the first word in his word. Go to the Bible. And for reference, see last week's sermon. Uh, Pastor Ryan walks us through the place of God's word in our, in our daily time with God. And if... Our prayers are to be a, a well-aged wine. That would mean they've spent a significant time soaking in the oak barrels of the pages of Scripture. If I'm not pressing the analogy too hard, we, we should be like soaked in Scripture until our prayers take on the aroma of the Word, until they take on the, uh, the flavor of Scripture. This is called... Meditation, soaking in his word, just sitting, chewing slowly on a single bite of God's word. Jesus said, man, you shouldn't live on bread alone, physical bread, but you should live on every word, every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is sitting and chewing on it, devouring it, memorizing it turning it from every angle in its, all its glory, meditation. And, and Pastor Ryan talked on, on this for a while last week, and to give it another analogy, between the islands of Bible and prayer is the bridge of meditation. So Ryan kind of ended his sermon there with a touch on meditation. I'm kind of starting mine there because it is the bridge between the two. Thomas Watson said, The reason we come away so cold from reading the Word is because we do not warm ourselves at the fires of meditation. Now, that's the same of why we come away so cold from prayer. When my prayers are cold and lifeless, I plunder the Psalms. The, this is the prayer book of the Bible. The Psalms, I've, I've never found anywhere more heartfelt, honest, angst-filled cries than I read in the Psalms, in the prayer life of David. If you need permission to complain to God, look no further than the Psalms, you see. Even just, I think, the, in four words, how long, O Lord... You could sit and chew on that and stir it into your own prayer life. How long, O Lord, the psalm says, will you hide your face from me forever? When my prayers are dry, I, I go to the psalms. Alec Motyer said, the psalms are written by people who knew a lot less about God than we do and loved God a lot more than we do.
So, number two, second step to an awful prayer life. Bring God into your hectic life on the go. You know, like it or not, life in the 21st century is crazy. We're, we're on the treadmill at the fastest pace, and if God wants some time with me, he's going to have to get it in the short little car trips between my busy schedule. I, I can take him with me, you know? God doesn't just live in the church or in my prayer closet like I'm out in the world and praying. Let's read this next verse, verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus is giving us a principle here of elimination. Things need to be shut, turned off, silenced. And it's interesting, in all four Gospels... The writers remember Jesus, who, by the way, was extremely busy. They remember him sneaking off often by himself to find a secluded desert hill for undistracted, focused prayer to the Father. And the reason God was with him in the busy city was that he was with God on the quiet mountaintop. Let's run that one again. The reason God was with him in the busy city is because he was with God on the quiet mountaintop. Charles Spurgeon, in his devotional Morning and Evening, he he says this, and this is my favorite, uh, like the most impactful quote on prayer for me. He said, Keep the altar of private prayer burning. This is the very life of all piety. The sanctuary and family altars borrow their fires here. Therefore, let this burn well. So he's saying your, your family, the spiritual vibrancy of your household, that's a borrowed flame from the altar of your private prayer. And our corporate fire, the when we come together for worship and to pray, the, the zeal and the life of our body as a church is a borrowed flame from your and mine private prayer altar before God. He says, secret devotion is the very essence, evidence, and barometer of vital and experimental religion. And what he's meaning there is that that secret devotion, this is the measure of a living experiential spirituality. If you're not a Pharisee, if you're not dead in religion, but you're alive to a real relationship with Jesus, the measure of that is your private prayer, your secret devotion. Now, in every single generation of the race of human beings prior to ours, no one could avoid solitude. It found you. You didn't have to go seek it. From Moses thousands of years before Jesus to thousands of years before Charles Spurgeon said this to then even just a short 150 years since Spurgeon, they all had something in common is that you couldn't escape times when you were alone, bored, and had space to ponder and and meditate. And now ours is the first generation to experiment with the idea of never being disconnected from the world. 
from our friends. And we must, as Jesus say, says, shut the door. That's not just a physical door, but this is an isolating and a secluding ourselves. We must break away. But the unique problem today is you shut that physical door and you're still in contact with the whole world in your pocket. When you sit and you kneel to pray, your phone should be in another room. Pen and paper are good. You can keep those to, because the Holy Spirit seems to always remind me in prayer, I need to check in on that person in that situation. Make a little note. Right back to prayer. But if you, if you pull your phone out to do something holy, you never know where it's going to lead you. Um, so it's not just that technology can distract you in the moment of prayer time. Smartphones actually train our brains to be unable to focus in prayer. I mean, I saw the hands go up at the beginning when we asked about if you're easily distracted from prayer after just a few seconds. Not as many hands would have gone up if we lived a couple hundred years ago or a few thousand years ago. Thanks, Steve Jobs. Thanks, Mark Zuckerberg. You know, their products are not evil, but my heart sure is the way it latches on to those things. And, and also that picture frame that hangs on the wall of your house, that portal to the best and the worst that the world has to offer, even if the TV and the movies that you're consuming are all in good, clean fun, nothing uh, sexual, it's just, it's just lighthearted, you're watching wholesome programming, it's still literally, scientifically, rewiring the neurons in your brain to only be stimulated by fast-cutting, chipper, clever, brightly colored, loud content. And prayer is none of that. Prayer is not fast-cutting, it's not chipper, it shouldn't be clever. It should be simple. It's not brightly colored, fast moving. And it's therefore most of the time very unstimulating to our overstimulated minds. First Peter says this, First Peter 4, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. There's something about your mind when it can't be anchored, sober, um, with its full attention on something. There's something that your prayers will just flitter out into nothing. We assume wrongly that our prayer life is mostly shaped by whatever time we spend in prayer, a lot or a little. It's going to shape our prayer life. But your prayer life is actually shaped to a much greater degree by all the habits and rhythms of your non-prayer closet time. Kind of a big sentence. Get it again. Your prayer life is actually shaped to a much greater degree by all the habits and rhythms of your non-prayer closet time. What are the cumulative effects of your media habits on the affections of your soul. What would it profit you to be up on the latest viral content, funniest, latest 
things to come around the internet that tend to be shared around. What would it profit you to be up on that and lose your soul? The bottom line is you will never have a vibrant prayer life, let alone a, even just a healthy prayer life, until you decide to have a DTR with this. And you really define some clear boundaries of where it helps you and where it hinders you. So let's read on through uh, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So He All right, we'll pause here. He already knows what you need, and he already knows what he'll do about it. So, point number three, how to have a real crappy prayer life. Trust that God's sovereignty will sort it all out either way. He knows we're sinful, lazy in prayer. Most of us (laughs) admitted it in the beginning. And if he wants to save my brother or your aunt, he will. He's not going to change what he's already predestined just because I ask him to. He'll heal the cancer or he won't. If it's the right job opportunity, he'll open the door whether I pray or not. He knows what I need before I even ask. So no, again, tongue out of my cheek here. the unspoken killer of our prayer life is our belief in the sovereignty of God. Note, I did not say that the sovereignty of God is the killer of our prayer life, but our belief that he's not going to change whatever he's already decreed and predestined just because I asked. So, you know, whatever will be, will be, whether I pray or not. That's not how sovereignty works. You'll forgive me, I'm a Star Wars fan. And when Finn and Han Solo were about to break into Starkiller Base, Finn says, we'll use the Force. And Han Solo turns to that's not how the Force works. And I'm right here telling you, that's not how God's sovereignty works. The big problem for us is not that we think God is too sovereign, but that he's not sovereign enough. Let me explain. We know he's sovereign over the ends. Healing, salvation, whatever he does, he'll do. He's sovereign over the ends. But what we might not understand is he's also sovereign over the means to reach his ends. He says, ask me. Ask and I'll give the nations to you as an inheritance. Pester me. Bother me. If a carpenter wanted a nail right there, he might pick up a hammer and he might push it in that way. And if God sovereignly has ordained to heal the cancer, he might first sovereignly ordain that this sermon or his word would stir your heart to ask, to seek, and to keep on seeking, and to knock and keep on knocking, and then the door would be opened. He's decreed the door to be opened, but he's also decreed you to ask and to be stirred for prayer. Now the question that might hang in the air, 
what if nothing happens? What if I keep on asking and keep on begging and nothing happens? I've seen that. Well, I don't mean to belittle that question, but, but yeah, isn't that the nature of a request? That it may or may not be granted? Like, we're, we're asking something. My kids ask me a lot of things. Doesn't necessarily mean if they keep on asking me, they'll break me down until I give in to something that's not good for them. So, a sovereign, all-knowing God may or may not agree with you that the thing you're asking for, that particular request, at this particular time, is for the ultimate good of your soul. He might say, yes, yes, I've stirred you to pray, you've asked me, and here it is. And he might not. And that's, this is why Jesus teaches us how to pray, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. It recalibrates our prayers that not everything we think is for our ultimate good. So you can pray, God, here's my heart on this issue. I want to see you do this. I long for you to do this and to break through in a miraculous way in this situation. But if you have other plans, no problem. Your ways are higher than my ways. If you have a different plan, we'll go your way. This is how Jesus prayed in the garden. God, please do this. Let this cup pass. But not, not my will. If you have a different plan, we'll go your way to the cross. This question, it's unspoken killer of our prayers. If God, if the Father knows what I need before I ask him, why ask? That question, each one of us needs to have an answer on. It's not necessarily one that I can, can give you for you, but it better be settled in your bones or you'll never feel the motivation to pray uh, when you would rather be doing something else, namely sleep. <laughs> the bed is cozy and God knows what he's going to do one way or the other. I'm just going to trust his sovereignty to work it out either way. Step three to a terrible prayer life. Step four, reject structured prayer as lifeless religion. True prayer, you know, you would say it's just whatever I'm thinking and feeling in the moment. You know, written prayers or praying before meals, or at a certain time, in the morning or at night, praying along a structured format, those are all lifeless, phony religion. That's funny, because next line says, Jesus said, pray then like this. (laughs) He proceeds to lay out a format for us to pray along. I don't think he meant for he didn't say, guys, let me teach you the Lord's Prayer. I don't think he meant for this to be the only format that God will listen to. And he stops his ears if you're not praying along this format. But Jesus seems to be pro-structure. And therefore, I'm going to argue two things from that premise. One, and give me a minute on this one, is that you should have the structure of a morning prayer time. 
Every, all of you. You know, I'm not a morning person. I've tried to pray in the morning, you know, before the sun's up, I just fall, I doze right back to sleep. I'll pray at night. Okay. Josiah, I got a question for you, though. Your guitar sounded really good today. Did you, do you typically tune it before you play or, or after when you put it in the case? Yeah, do you tune it before or, or later after the show? Before. <laughs> so, I think it's a good idea maybe to tune your soul bef- to resonate with the Spirit of God before you snap at your family, speed off to work, grumble through your day, and then come home and try to pray? You're really seriously going to sit down after that kind of a whirlwind and grumble, and you're going to pray now at the end, before you put the guitar in the case, before you put yourself to bed. Tune my soul to sing thy grace before it matters, like before the day. George Mueller said, uh, and by the way, he's a super busy guy. He ran I don't know how many orphanages and was just a really... Really busy saint doing the Lord's work. And he said this. He realized the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. I honestly think this is the most important thing you could hear this morning. Is what Mueller says right here. The first, number one, chronologically, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. That I leave my prayer closet and greet the day saying or feeling, it is well with my soul before my God. Even John Piper, preacher, pastor, he says, I feel like I have to get saved again every morning. To me, that was really helpful to hear him say that because how much more me, man. I wake up, I've totally forgotten what justification could mean. I've totally thought that it's all about whether I'm performing well before God and turns out I'm not. Yesterday wasn't a a smash hit, wasn't a grand slam. And I get saved again as I come before God. And then... One more quote, why not? Uh, William Law, he, he wrote this in the 17, early 1700s. He said, If you were to rise early every morning as an instance of self-denial, as a method of renouncing indulgence, as a means of redeeming your time, and of fitting your spirit for prayer, you would find mighty advantages from it. This method though it seems such a small circumstance of life, waking up earlier, would in all probability be a means toward greater, toward great piety. It would keep it constantly in your head that softness and idleness were to be avoided and that self-denial was a part of Christianity. If nothing else, you get yourself out of bed to remember, oh yeah, this isn't about my comfort a life of following Jesus, of taking up my cross to follow him, not about what makes me happiest. It would teach you to exercise power over yourself and make you able, by degrees, to renounce other pleasures and tempers that, that war against your soul. This morning time, 
is sacred. I feel like you should, this appointment should be as rigid as if you were meeting with the President of the United States. I don't know if that analogy carries all the weight I meant for it to. Um, but if, is God just okay with just getting your leftovers? Whatever you have left at the end of the day? In, in Malachi, God, uh, God convicts his people. He says, you have despised my name. And they say, How? And then in verse 8, might be on the screen, God says, for, for you, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame and sick as a sacrifice to me, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? God says, give that, go ahead and try and offer to your earthly boss what you offer to me. The level of sacrifice you give to me, will he, will he like that from you? They were supposed to offer the best of their livestock as a sacrifice. The spotless one. The strong one. The vibrant one. The one that really would do well to, to mate or to eat or, or to whatever use they had for that animal. The one that's most useful and precious, that's the one that better get on the, on the altar to be sacrificed to Yahweh, to the God. Uh, and, but if, if he just is okay with our leftovers, then I think Satan will, will see to it that there isn't much of anything left at the end of a day of the world demanding your attention from every angle. He'll make sure there's not much but a couple scraps left for God. Prayer is always a sacrifice. If you have a pen in your hands, write this. Prayer is always a sacrifice. The difference is, is it a good one? Are you offering an acceptable sacrifice? And so... Jesus seems to be pro-structure. And now the second thing I want to argue from, from that point is this structure that seemed to be helpful for many, many Christians is a very simple prayer structure. Um, I've found it helpful this week as I've tried it on for size and it's pretty simple. It's the acronym ACTS. The first letter, adoration. You come before God and you just declare who he is. Whether you feel it at 5 a.m. or not, I can tell you 99.9% of the time I don't feel it, but he is a faithful husband to me. He is a loving daddy to me. And he is a friend of sinners. And so I tell him who he is, not because he needs to hear it, because I need to say it. It's not because God's insecure. It's because I get insecure when I forget that he's faithful, that he's never going to let me down, that he's never going to have anything but love and and acceptance for me in the work of Jesus. So I I tell God who he is. Now, in the mid-90s, you know, a while back, scientists determined that there are 200 billion galaxies. And just last fall, that was totally upturned and thrown out the window, scientists realized they were dramatically wrong about the scope of the universe. There aren't 200 billion galaxies in the universe, they said. It's more like 2 trillion 
Yes, trillion. The number of galaxies in our observable universe is ten times higher than previously projected. Okay, that trillion, that's not trillions of planets. That's not trillions of stars. That's trillions of galaxies of which our Milky Way is one and of the Milky Way our sun is one of a hundred billion stars. And all of it sustained by the word of his power. And before we begin to utter cheap words to him at five in the morning, you better, we would do well, (laughs) I'll say, to remind ourselves, I'm now entering into the audience chamber of that God. The uncreated one, consuming fire, the one with angels that are shielding their eyes from his glory and who are crying out so holy and they never tire of it he's holy he's so holy adoration situates us where we belong our father the one in the heavens hallowed be your name because it, it helps it situates me i say oh yeah I, I don't, I'm not calling the shots. My name will be etched on a tombstone and eventually pass out of living memory. And his name will be hallowed. It will be exalted and made much of and it will be beautiful for, for eternity. Now, then you move pretty easily into the sea, confession. First John says if we, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just because of Jesus to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So conf- confess, if nothing else, confess your prayer struggles. Confess that this is hard and it shouldn't be. This kind of a God shouldn't be boring. The, the, the greatest depravity in my soul, I know, is that I can be in this, the presence of this God and get bored and distracted. Confess that. He's big enough to handle it. And then you can move into thanksgiving. A-C-T, the T is thanksgiving. Now, this is kind of, I don't know if it's just me, it feels a bit like a throwaway one. Thank you, God, for um, this morning and my family. It's not just polite manners. You know, when someone gives my kids something, I tell them, what do you say? Be polite. Tell, tell them thank you. It's not that kind of thanksgiving. This kind of gratitude, best way I've experienced it lately, is I've been, I've been working out in the morning, mainly so that I don't doze off in prayer, um, but I'm on an elliptical thing and I'm going and, and every day there's a point, you know, you hit a wall and you're like, I audibly say, I hate working out. <laughs> workout sucks. And so I just, I just like, ah! And when that comes... What I've done is I think that there are thousands of fathers that don't have legs to, that they could roll around and romp around with their kids and ride bikes and play. And I remember there's breath in my lungs when I know of fathers who didn't live to the ripe old age of 30 that I am. And I feel blood rushing through my veins. And I don't even say like, yeah, I'm going to pedal faster. I just feel like I'm flying It feels like a miracle that I can pump my legs harder. Gratitude just fuels your your life in prayer. And then lastly, thanks, uh, not thanks, I mean supplication. The S. 
Um, this is just a fancy word for ask. Now you can actually, you might actually be in a place now where you, 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 can, you can, with the right motives and the right uh, heart, ask God. My, so my kids, again, they, they wake up and they never vary from this two-step ritual. They wake up, and here's step one, find mom or dad. Step two, tell them I'm hungry. I'm very hungry. I don't, I, I'm like, dude, we ate dinner right before bed last night. Like, how'd you work up such an appetite? But they're like, urgent. Their minds, there must be an urgent connection made between my great hunger and my father's great supply of granola and yogurt. I must get the connection made between those two things. And morning by morning, I come hungry. I come and I say, just fill my starved spirit. Heal my wounded soul. Renew my corrupt mind. And give me clean hands and a pure heart. Give me, God, I want, I need, I need. And you know what? He's never put off. Like some earthly fathers, he's never put off by my neediness and my pushiness. He's always glad to meet my grasping with his giving. And there's a beautiful flow to, to this Acts. You know, as, as your view of God's greatness grows in adoration, you think about the galaxies, you think about his faithfulness in adoration, and then your uh, view of your ungreatness grows also lower and lower, and his greatness in adoration grows higher and higher. Well, the cross of Jesus that bridges that gap between his holiness, my wretchedness, that, the cross, you just become so grateful. You're instantly moved from adoration to confession to gratitude, to thankfulness. And then your soul is really in a place where you can start to ask with the faith to trust him and the right motives in the first place. So if you don't have a good structure or system to your prayer life, I'm giving that to you. I want you to try it. Today until Wednesday night, we'll come together for prayer at Credo Coffee. And man, if you, I mean, if you've got something better, keep doing your prayer life that you're doing, Nancy. Keep it up, you know. But for the rest of us that are like struggling on, how do I come before God? Try this structure out. It'll become second nature. It's easy to remember. And I just think if we all showed up four days in on that kind of um, communion with God, that, that Wednesday night could be a really powerful moment for the life of our church. So it brings me to number five, last step to a, a wretched prayer life is don't be a Pharisee, only pray privately. <laughs> right? You know, Jesus in our text, he rebuked the Pharisees for pl- praying out in public. Christians should only pray behind closed doors to God in secret. You could get that from this text. Unless you read the Lord's Prayer that says, Our Father, give us this day. Forgive us. Jesus taught us to pray in plural. You know, uh, communal prayers. He assumes that when his saints meet up, that, oh, well, prayer is going to be integral to that. Hearing each other's hearts cry, we catch a new glimpse of God that we've never seen before. Because each one prays from a unique perspective and it bleeds out into your prayers, every one of you. You know, that's your accent, like just unintentional signature that you put. When I pray, it's always going to be from this darker tint of 
God, even in this awful mess, will you somehow redeem something beautiful? And then I hear Katie pray, and it's just like, God, you've showered us with so many blessings, and the sun is shining. And I'm like, it's 84 in January. Are you kidding, God? You know, totally different perspectives. And then I hear Kevin pray. He says, you're a holy God. You're worthy. And I'm like, oh yeah. He's, aside from whether I feel like the sky is falling or the sun is shining, he is concretely worthy and holy whether I see it or not. And then when my wife Cassie prays, I'm reminded, oh yeah, God gave us emotions to to be able to uh, be moved deeply when we're exposed to the presence of God. It's okay to care about what people are struggling with. Meet them in there and weep with those who weep. Very few of us honestly set aside time that we meet with other Christians for prayer. And then we wonder why our faith is feeble, our hope in Christ is weak. God's plan was that the spoken longings of each other's hearts would stir each other, would energize and rekindle our faith and our passion. And we read in the book of Acts that the early church was devoted to prayer, it says. In many different places, the early church, with all the power and fireworks of God's Spirit moving among them, it, they were devoted to prayer. And we, we have to acknowledge that now in Orlando in 2017, it is not default to move in desperate prayer. Not going to happen just by default or by a sermon. If we're not rowing our boat of this church in the direction we want to go, which I pray is the direction the early church in the book of Acts went, we will drift. And it nev- you never drift upstream. We'll drift downstream. So come this Wednesday with the, the, the altar of your private prayer burning bright in the days to come today, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and then come Wednesday night, ready to bring your flame, ready to bring your prayers, and we will join together and pray, God, would you grant unbelievers a heart of repentance among your church? And then they wouldn't just attend, but they would be baptized into the community of saints, your fellowship of, of, of the church. God, would you give our children faith from an early age? Would you pour out the, uh, the gifts of your spirit on our church? We want to see healings. We want to see prophecy. We want to see radical generosity. That the church would be edified for her work in the city. Would you stand together? I feel like I've set before you life and death. And, I, and I'm praying that you choose life. I'm pleading because a prayerless soul is a dead soul. And what other option is there for you, Christian? For those that, that, that Jesus is your, your Lord, your, your Savior, I don't know what other option. Are you going to go your whole life with God like, like a cohabitating couple that they, they used to have the fire of, of a marriage and now that's ended a long time ago and it's just kind of lukewarm or like, is that, is that how you're going to spend your life with God? Or you're going to hope that when you get to heaven, then something is going to, a, fli- a, a switch is going to flip, and all of a sudden the things of God and knowing his ways is, is all of a sudden going to be interesting to you? That, that happens now in this life. 
Hebrews issues such a strong warning for those who would neglect so great a salvation. Because it's, it's one thing to reject so great a salvation and say, Jesus, no, I don't believe any of that. That is bogus. It's another to believe it in the work of Jesus and then neglect so great a salvation. I just pray that everyone in here would, 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 would merge from one way to the other. You'd just reject this whole thing and be like, that sounds like a miserable life of sacrifice. This is not even worth it. I'm out. Or you would dive full in and see the altar of your private prayer burn brightly. A prayerless soul is a dead soul. A prayerful soul is, a, is alive to God. I just would love to see everyone out of the middle where there's no one that's neglecting so great a salvation. You can't make up for this by increased Bible reading or you're going to serve in the kids' ministry or you're going to listen to more sermons throughout your week on your drive. You can't make up for... Nothing compensates for the place of prayer in a Christian's life. This is your lifeline to God. So, as we... Uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and let's, let's pray. God, you... You, you got you to do a work here where my words fail and um, I know a sermon on prayer isn't going to do much of anything, but, but your spirit can stir, your, your power can move in, in this room and touch um, many souls this morning and draw them, pull them, say that you would speak to each heart and say, I want to know you. I want to make myself known to you. God, would your spirit speak that truth to each heart this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. Servers, would you come as we prepare to take communion? And as we come to the table, remember that you, we, we pray because we're valuable to God. We don't, we're not valuable to God because we pray. The reason we're valuable to God is because of the work of Jesus, because of the blood that his son spilt to make us worthy. So for those of you who are in Christ and have made Jesus the Lord, the master of your life, then come to this table now, regardless of the coldness or fire of your own prayer life up until now, this is the work of Jesus that we come to and partake of. And we pray that he'll transform us by it. And for those of us that haven't made Jesus the, the master of your life, um, take this time in your chair and, and really let God speak. Open up your spirit. Would, would he actually have something to say to you today? On this day in January, that, that he could actually, from heavens, from galaxies and trillions of stars, that he could actually come in and zone in on your heart and speak. Would you have ears to hear? Jesus, thank you for your cross. I pray that our gratitude would, would well up in us and that we would, we would just run this week with endurance, the race set before us because of your, your blood. In your name, Jesus, amen. Christian, would you come to this table?